Blog Talk Radio.
projecting and the use of power. So come and join us. So right now, I will take you to our analysts and panelists, and we will introduce them to you. So let's get started with this party. We start out with Brother Anthony. We welcome you to Africa on the Move. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Father Brother Anthony. We will bring now Brother Haki. We welcome you, Brother Haki, to Africa on the move. Uh, Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamafi Mashoki, Colonel African Awareness, and I'm all about institution building. And one of the things, one of the reasons why I feel institution building is so important in terms of aspirations of an oppressed people is that recently I read an article about Dr. Peggy McIntosh entitled White Privilege and Male Privilege. Uh, she's a professor out of Wesleyan College. She talked about the fact that white males are conditioned not to see the benefits of their, white, of their male whiteness. And it's very interesting because when you think about it, uh, in terms of the extent that you can impact on this kind of conditioning, it takes years. But when we superimpose that upon the reality that we have a situation increasingly where more and more the people becoming less and less powerless, becoming more and more powerless. And given that, rea- given that backdrop or given that reality, then it seems to me that we have to have institutions in terms of uh, not only fighting back, actually be in a position to even format exactly precisely what the issues are in terms of why they have to be confronted. So I think any resolution to the social political barriers that people facing in oppressed communities, it has to be done in an organized manner. So we have to have institutions in terms of combating the, the very um, uh, treacherous changes that are taking place in the society, particularly when we talk about fascism trying to grow and, and, to, and, and to multiply. Um, so in event, so institutions are extremely important. And again, Brother Africa, I want to thank you for having me. Thank you, Brother Aki. Father, Brother Aki, we will now bring in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the move. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Ingredients to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism. I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years in 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, the often finisher of my faith, that my faith tongue is the message of government. Fathers, help your children. And so I thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show with Africa. Thank you, Brother Moses. Thank you to our supporter and listening audience. Uh, again, we'd like to just send a shout-out and remind you that Currently, uh, Sister Hattie, Mine, Cecile, um, still suffering some sickness. We wish her a speedy recovery, and we'd like to reach out and say hello to her and her family. Now, before we go to the Father, I would like to make a statement in reference to the technical aspects of our program today. If you experience any kind of uh, difficulties in terms of 
not being able to heal our presenters is something that is out of our control. It has been reported to the appropriate agency, and we hope that sometime in the near future we can resolve this particular dilemma. But bear with us, and we're going to have to be patient and continue just right through it. This particular technology is something that we don't control. So, given the fact that I made a statement, let's get started with our first segment of the program, which is panelists and analysts. What's going on in your world and and the community, Brother Anthony? Yes. Um, uh, let's see several things. Um, uh, let's see uh, first from uh, from the motherland. Uh, let's see uh, there uh, there's there've been a, uh, some up, uh, an uprising against the current government in Zimbabwe. Uh, due to uh, um, you know the, uh, shortages of uh, various goods and uh, people not getting paid, you know, for, uh, you, you know, a salary for the work that they're doing. Uh, so that 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 there are uprisings breaking out throughout Zimbabwe, also in Sudan, uh, for similar sets of reasons. Um, there that the, the the people are, are 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 frustrated with the current government in Sudan and also uh in uh South America uh there what uh there is an attempted coup d'etat against the current government of Venezuela in an effort to replace Maduro with uh, uh, with, with uh, a figure that that would be a client of the U.S. Uh, so those are some of the things that are happening in my world. And thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world and the community? You, you know, one of the things, as the old adage goes, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Uh, you know, recently... In Kansas, there was a young student by the name of Camille Studevac, uh, who was denied the participation in a high school uh, dance team. And the reason that the, the adults gave her was that the fact that her skin was too dark, and the fact her skin color clashed with the uniform, color of the uniform. Now here it is, the 21st century, and we're still trying. Or there are those individuals who are something to imply there's something fundamentally wrong in terms of dark skin. But certainly one of the things I, I hope the young lady understands, at least I'm certainly hoping that her parents convey to her, is that when you talk about the dark, dark skin, essentially what you're talking about is royalty. So that dark skin represents the origin of human beings. And so, therefore, she, she represents the motherhood of motherhood, of all motherhood. So she has a lot to stand proud for and understand that, you know, to be black is an honor. So this notion that somebody has something fundamental wrong with being when dark, uh, speaks to the speaks to the issue in terms of kind of ignorance that's so prevalent, you know, in this world, and particularly in, in the in the United States. And so, I certainly hope that a young lady understands, you know, that with that dark skin, you know, comes certain a great deal of respect, a great deal of love, and a great deal of honor because of what she represents. And I certainly hope she gets the message that uh, you know that uh, there's a great deal of uh, admiration for her, for what she stands for, and what she represents. And I uh, close with that. Thank you, Brother Ike. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Certainly, um, 
the the situation in, in Zimbabwe and the situation in Venezuela are two of the key things going on in in this era. Um, the government, the orange menace, and um, there's a menace to uh, compromise and bring the U.S. government uh, the, those this this franchise, this um, unpaid workers. Uh, supposedly get paid, and that was a big thing this week. Uh, um, there was a demonstration Thursday in support of of, of uh, the Venezuelan government and uh, against the coup, and uh, that was participated at the White House by Answer and Code Pink and other organizations. Um, uh, those have been the key things going on this week. Thank you. Thank you, Moses. Panelists, what we're going to do right now, unless the audience, we're going to quickly take a pause for the calls when we come back. We're going to talk about some of the things that are going on in our panelist world, as well as to have you call in and share with us in your world and the community by calling 323 We're going to pause for this call and we'll be right back. You are listening to Africa. On the moon. Discussion on what's going on in our world and the community. Uh, 
Brother Anthony earlier you had mentioned the issue of what's going on in Venezuela and Zimbabwe. There seem to be two or two attempts to create the scenario of a coup inside of Venezuela as well as in um, Zimbabwe. As well as there has been some disturbances, I think also in Nicaragua, um, some stuff is going on in Haiti, I mean Brazil, particularly as it relates to African people. Now, when we look at all of these occurrences and these right-wing forces moving towards trying to consolidate, consolidate their power, one would come to believe, Brother Andrew, that it seems to be like a um, these efforts and these events uh, has a coordination relationship to U.S. interests. Your response to that? Yes. I think what uh, what is happening is that there, there's been uh, a shift uh, to the right in several countries uh, that were uh, that that had recently elected uh, socialist uh, or progressive uh, governments, and uh, and uh, uh, international bourgeoisie is on a is on a, a military and economic offensive against those countries. Uh, that's why uh, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba were li- were labeled by uh, John Bolton as a troika of tyranny. And uh, you know because they uh, uh, they pursuing a policy independent of uh, the dictates of the U.S. And I think what's happening with uh, with Venezuela in particular is an attempt to turn Venezuela once again into a client state of the U.S. because of the reserves of petroleum that it has. Uh, red, uh, uh, rhetoric aside, uh, the ruling class could care less about the uh, democracy for the people. They want to install... Uh, someone that's going to be friendly, uh, you know, to the capitalist uh, ruling uh, class. And uh, that's uh, the root of uh, the struggle going on in in Venezuela. And also there are some, uh, there are some economic difficulties caused largely by uh, the, the blockade imposed on Venezuela by the U.S., yeah, you know, Brother Haki, when you look at the, um, the corporate or the major players behind Venezuela as well as in Zimbabwe, we can say we talk about countries such as the U.S., Canada, and the EU. Now, what do all three of these countries have in common, Brother Haki? Well, what they have in common? Well, um, the desire for absolute control. Uh, this whole question in terms of pluralism is something that we have to fundamentally understand. Imperialism has nothing to has nothing to do with the expansion of the economy. Imperialism has everything to do with the consolidation of power. And as a consequence, we have these Western states working together, in particular, uh, being led by the United States for the sole purpose in terms of maximizing power. Now, how does it maximize its power? Well, it maximizes power by first influence and secondly by domination. And of course, the domination is achieved by what? Military intervention. 
And so what we see in Venezuela is a classic example in terms of pretext, uh, you know, for military intervention. First, to create the case that there's instability that's threatening the lives of the Venezuelan people, if not threatening the lives of American citizens living in Venezuela. And so, therefore, military intervention is just and necessary. Text is all part of a broader plan in terms of, as Brother Anthony alluded to, not only the destabilization of Venezuela, but ultimately the destruction of the Venezuelan system. Uh, and one of the things I also brought to Africa, I think we, it's important we point out, that we're not only talking about governments per se when we talk about, you know, these, 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 these international interventions. We're also talking about, you know, the intelligence communities in those countries who uh, carry out the government's policy. Uh, this is important that people understand when we talk about this kind of chaos that exists in the world. Uh, there was an Operation uh, Gladio, and this is where the CIA and Western intelligence, along with NATO, actually fomented all kind of chaos in terms of mass assassinations, bombings, um, um, killings, and then they turn around, and what they do is that they blame the, 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 they blame the, 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 the country that they're in. They actually blame those individuals for, for, the, for the bombing and killings. So when you look at Venezuela and we look at terms of the the the, the, the uh, when you look at the popular narrative that's portrayed by the media, and you look at all these problems, keep in mind that these problems these problems are were facilitated and created not by the Venezuelan people, but created by Western intelligence. And so, and, and often, you know, the good thing that uh, President Maduro talked about, he talked about closing down the embassies, you know, and uh, the U.S. embassy, and uh, in Venezuela. And the reason why that's so important because a lot of the intelligence in terms of destabilizing or ultimately overthrowing governments lies for U.S. embassies. So those ambassadors are not there out of goodwill. They're there to see what they can do in terms of furthering U.S. interests. In this case, furthering U.S. interests means the overthrow of the Maduro government, even though he was rightly correct, uh, um, selected uh, or, 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 he, or he, was, he won the election uh, by the masses of the people's support. And so irrespective of that, we have a Western nation which is saying that we don't feel that his election was justified, and so therefore we're going to give him eight days, you know, to have another election. Or in the case of the United States, later, we, don't, we don't care about any elections. We just say you got to go, and if you don't go, then we're, there's a pretext on the board in which we're going to militarily invade you. First, we're going to use Brazil, the fastest country of Brazil, under the leadership of this fool, uh, Bolsonaro, and Colombia, we can use them first, you know, to sort of weaken you, and then ultimately we can come in to clean up. But I don't think it's going to work because I think the Venezuelan people are very intelligent people. President Maduro is a very intelligent man. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, in terms of military forces, in addition to other forces around the, uh, you know, around the globe who support the Venezuelan people, uh, it's not going to be an easy victory for the United States. So they, if they do invade militarily, they're going to be there for a long, long while, which means that, Ultimately, they will succeed because the U.S. economy is in, in, in shambles, and they can't afford increasingly, you know, adding on to the already, already eight wars that currently are going on throughout the world. So, so the question is, U.S. brother Africa, the question is, you're absolutely correct. This move is orchestrated. It's all by design. It's part of furthering imperialism uh, under the guise of, of fascism and or neoliberalism. You know, Brother Moses, I believe y'all had some activity recently, yesterday, up in D.C. around uh, Venezuela, um, around what's going on in Venezuela. Uh, is there anything you can maybe share with our listening audience? Did you get a chance to maybe check out the activities that took place this weekend? 
Right. Um, well, you know, people are in the streets trying to demonstrate, uh, stop the intervention of U.S. into the Venezuelan government and just uh, the chest. The Venezuelan government, as you know, the president was elected, and uh, we have business trying to uh, America and wants to get all of the Venezuela and suck the blood out of the people. You know, this is no reason why we should all jump on the bandwagon. Uh, Vice President Pence and, you know, and uh, has you know practically called for a coup, coup, and uh, this, this situation we're faced with, you know, the people uh, intelligent and and uh, hopefully will not uh, succumb to the propaganda of the U.S. You know, brother US Anthony. Brother Anthony and panelists, rest of panelists. Also, one of the things this blockade does is really is act of war. When we talk about this blockade, and we talk about also like in, in Zimbabwe, you you often hear them make the statement that uh, government cannot provide them with certain services, and they won't make you think that the government is incompetent. But the bottom line is because of the trade relationships they may have with with the West and how the West can undermine the economy is the West that created the conditions for these so-called food shortages and stuff. And the bottom line is they're trying to force the people to um, uh, go against their own government, such as they've been trying to do to Cuba ever since 1961. So the question becomes, at least for me, is to how do we create a, a, a process where we can really educate the rank and file People inside the U.S. just let them realize the real the real dynamics of what's taking place, and for them not to become a buffalo soldier, be ordered to go somewhere and fight somebody who never done nothing nothing to them. Palace, brother Anthony, can you respond to that a little bit? Sure, I think a key is um, political education, as you alluded to, becomes critically important especially in terms of uh, educating people to the truth of what's going on and also the history of these areas where U.S. troops are being sent to fight. And uh, I read somewhere that, uh, that three subjects that, the, that, that participants in the military are, di- are discouraged from studying are history, political science, and um, social science, I think. I think those were the three sub-areas that they're discouraged from studying. So, I mean, uh, a lot of cases, and very often, you have the youth because, uh, you know, going into these areas, not knowing anything about the history or the culture of these areas where they're being sent to fight, and why there's so much hostility towards the U.S. in the first place. And I think so political education becomes important. And also for the progressive and socialist forces to go on a political offensive in terms of getting information out about what's going on. 
and also uh, when um, you know when uh, whenever a socialist government comes to power, they have to put in place an apparatus for educating the people. One of the I think one of the key reasons why the Cuban Revolution has been able to survive as long as it has is because they uh, that th- th- they made an effort. Uh, very early in the in the history of the revolution to eliminate illiteracy, so that the people can be informed about what is happening around them in the world, and 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 and, and explain what you know what the cause of their problems are. So I think that becomes very important, and unfortunately, uh, you know, in areas where. Um, where, 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 where education is poor or lacking, the people do not have that understanding and tend to take their frustration out on the, on the government, not realizing that the economy is being externally manipulated against their interests. You know, Brother Hackey, this, this process of destabilization was it in Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, Zimbabwe, the Cameroon, Sudan, what have you. It's a continuous tactic that the West does, that the imperialism does, in order to maintain its, its power. So when we look at this whole process and what's going on around the world, it's, it's nothing new. I remember reading a, a, a textbook where they stated that when you study the enemy, you realize that anything that he used that has been successful he would never give that up. So we can see many of the things they have done in the past that continue to do today. And I'm saying this because of the fact that you often talk about the rural institutions. It's, you know, how institutions are viable in terms of molding and directing and holding people together to be able to resist certain, certain forces and oppression. So can you just talk a little bit about, you know, the history how the West have always used tools to try to destabilize countries, and um, how can people protect themselves against this, this process of destabilization? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely correct. Uh, it's an old strategy in terms of destabilization. It goes all the way back to Rome. Uh, one of the things is that uh, we should keep in mind though, when we talk about these destabilization efforts, it takes a lot of money in terms of doing that. And historically, the United States has been free simply create money to justify, uh, not necessarily justify, but create money for the sole purpose in terms of, you know, foreign intervention around the world. The problem is that right now, as the situation currently unfolds, increasingly the dollar is under pressure, and people are rejecting the dollar. So, therefore, as a reserve currency, the dollar doesn't have any real power, which means that it creates a real vacuum in terms of the U.S. ability to actually be able to conduct these foreign wars. And superposed upon that, given the Brexit and uh, Brexit and uh, in in, U- in the UK, if in fact they break away, that's going to further contribute to the to their the, the problems the US face in terms of having access to the money they need in terms of you know destabilization of countries around the world. And so one of the reasons why I I, I would like to see Brexit because it would undermine US foreign policy to a great extent, something because UK would no longer be in a position to contribute financially. Uh, to these shenanigans that are facilitated, you know, by the United States. Uh, but I think when you talk about historically, you talk about destabilization, and, and you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa, it's very, very effective, and it's going to continue to be effective as long as the people who are targeted, those countries that are targeted, 
as long as they fail, as Brother Anthony alluded to, as long as they fail to educate their people, as long as they fail to create institutions, you know, to, to combat, you know, the uh, or Western policy, then they continue to be at the mercy of the West. And of course, if people are illiterate or they're uneducated, and so when they when they when they when they when they, when they, when they find their lives miserable, uh, of course they look to blame someone. If they don't adequately understand that there are there are foreign institutions, um, um, foreign governments, uh, foreign policies that's in place to ensure their suffering, they never they don't come to the realization that their suffering is a direct result of someone else's policies. They think that the problem is the 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 leaders of that particular country lacks drive, lacks initiative, and lacks uh, a certain amount of acumen or a certain amount of intellect, and that's not what's happening. It is that you're up against a global system, and that's what people have to understand. But if you don't educate them to understand that, then they won't understand that. So one of the things when we talk about revolution, the great thing about revolution when you talk about Cuba or when you talk about uh, Nicaragua or you talk about China or you talk about Vietnam, Vietnam or any of those countries, the thing is that once those revolutions are consolidated, once they're concluded, then the, the, the issue in terms of educating the folks becomes a priority. And so, therefore, it's not easy for Western nations to simply come in and support the people simply because they have an understanding in terms of how the world operates. But in a situation where you don't have these revolutions and you have people who come to power who don't necessarily have the, the, say the, um, the political acumen in terms of understanding the way the world is organized, they continue to play ball with the West at their own, uh, um, their own uh, demise. And so, therefore, it's important in terms of being able to create those institutions, you know, in your country, which, which clearly identifies, uh, clarifies exactly what the issues are and how you're going to confront those issues or how you're going to create a situation in which those issues won't impact your country in a negative kind of way. But as I said before, historically, countries that just conclude revolution are very good in terms of instilling that, that, that ideology or that, or that knowledge in their people. Countries that are not engaged in, in, in revolution uh, tend not to be as, as savvy when it comes to educating their people in terms of what they're up against. So this historically has always been a problem. And as long as people remain uneducated about what's going on around the world, then they continue to be manipulated by those outside of their own countries. Uh, but having said that, one other thing I want to add about Africa, I think it's important, and particularly when we talk about Africa, one of the things I think is important is that you know um, there? I mean, we we Africans born in the U.S. is a re, we are a resource in terms of for the continent. We can advocate in terms of you know for the betterment of, of in terms of what's going on in Africa, trying to improve the situation. But ultimately, we can also be a resource to the extent that we're actually on the continent where we actually get in, can engage people in terms of what's going on because a lot of people really don't know. So if we can actually engage them, then we can we can sort of make it uh, sort of amp up the, the pressure. Uh, put on the leaders in African states to actually reform their political system, actually begin to create institutions which can prepare the people, you know, for Western policy and how it may negatively impact their countries. Uh, but those kind of things I think we have to do in terms of, you know, defeating the West, because without, without a clear understanding of what they're doing, they continue to manipulate folks uh, on, a, on, a, on a grand level. And keep in mind, this manipulation is not only when we talk about externally and we talk about foreign countries, also in the United States, nationally, right here internally, they do a very good job in terms of manipulating the masses of people who don't know what they're doing, who think that their problems are self-inflicted and don't understand that there's a system in place to ensure those problems exist in the first place. So we have to do a better job in terms of educating our people, and we've got to have institutions in terms of clarifying exactly what the, situation's, what the situation is. You know, Brother Ike, you raised the issue of 
problems being self-inflicted. And many people may not understand why they are self-inflicted. You alluded to earlier in your in your analysis of what's going on in your world in the community about how uh, African people and youth have been attacked based upon the pigmentation or the color of their skin. And a lot of times we'll conclude that as being, uh, being, being racist behavior. Also, even within our own rank, there seem to be springing up again this question of colorism among African people here and throughout the world, which is being created and, and, and promoted by external forces. Now, panelists, Brother Moses, you can you can start us off if you can. Your response to when you look at this question of um, racism and this question when you look at um, this question of colorism as it relates to African people. How can we begin to defend ourselves of not being tricked by that particular old tactic again and continue to fight for unity as a people globally? Because recently on TV, they had this incident where they had a brother who was a wrestler, and they claimed that his dreads were too long, and they had a European lady in front of everybody in the gym, made the brother, he, she literally cut the brother's dreads off his head. As well as recently on TV, there was a young lady, little girl in elementary school. She refused to eat her food, and they had one young lady grabbing her by her hair, trying to force her to eat her, eat her food. So I'm saying the, the very forms of how race, the very forms of how colorism is playing itself out, is very interesting in terms of um, in today's world. And I think that we need to be conscious of it, but not use it as a tool where we become uh, internally start fighting ourselves. And that's something I want to um, see if we can have some kind of discussion in terms of how can we um, raise the confidence of our people about that and how can we all uh, fight against not becoming victims of fighting ourselves at the expense and the interest of what the enemy wants us to do. Because I see this happening now on a daily basis. And part of the reason is the unconsciousness among our people. The other reason is, I think we alluded to earlier, if we don't control our own history, if we don't control institutions on a continued basis that can continue to reinforce positive attributes of our people and our culture, Will be continue to be open to these kind of manipulations. So, panelists, speak to that for me today. How can we exactly. get this question of colorism, racism, as apply external, internal to African people globally? Go ahead, brother Moses. Exactly. Uh, we we need we need institutions, school systems, teachers who will teach our history. Uh, this is a problem. We don't have a, a solid ideological. Uh, understanding of, of our history, and we, we've been taught, you know, superficial and neoliberal ideas about the world, and and so when we encounter uh, racist activity, we're we're slow to recognize Moses. and call racist. Hello. So, lost brother Moses, this is kind of technical difficulties we've been telling. And listen, audience, we've been having for the past several weeks in the past. So, see about with us. See if you don't have. Can you hear Brother Moses? Um, Brother Anthony, Brother mm-hmm. Haki, got to continue that discussion. On this question, on this question of how do we uh, raise that consciousness around this question of racism, colorism, colorism as it impacts African people 
globally, here and abroad? Yes. Um, I think it's important uh, to understand that uh, that for the last, for at least the last 500 years, uh, capitalists have been using uh, divide and conquer. In other words, they uh, that they exacerbate the differences amongst ourselves, and also uh, because of racism, there's been a higher value placed upon. Uh, you know, Africans with a lighter skin tone than Africans that have a darker skin tone, and uh, that's been a uh, that's a more recent uh, divide and conquer tactic. And even an even older one is uh, is uh, playing uh, putting emphasis on linguistic and religious differences that exist amongst us. But uh, the uh, but the uh, but but the end game is to keep us divided and fighting amongst ourselves. And uh, you know we have to teach uh, you know ourselves a, 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 a different value system, one that uh, that 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 celebrates the commonness the commonness of our culture and our and our traditional values. And that can be only preserved through Pan-Africanism, and uh, you know, which uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, takes the positive aspects of our history and culture, uh, which have been enlarged by encounters with other people, and then construct the, the new society. But uh, we need uh, we need to unify, and 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 the way to do that is through organization. And uh, we have to teach each other, uh, you know, our cultural values and the things that unite us and be able to explain the differences that exist among us in terms uh, as a consequence of, of changes, uh, you know, in, in conditions of the world. Because there's a reason why all of us don't look alike. Uh, you know, have different features and whatnot, but that was a result of our efforts to adapt to different conditions that exist in the world. Well, Aki, I'd like to respond to that question. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things, one of the biggest misnomers, Brother Africa, is that, you know, once we start dying to this question of race, and it's very easy to adopt colorism. Uh, this notion that, in fact, that race is the objectively qualifiable uh, um, scientific indication in terms of who people are is, a, is, 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 is crazy. Uh, but nonetheless, we've been told that there's a black race, a white race, a yellow race, a red race, blah, 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 blah. Of course, none of that makes any sense. There's only one race, which is the human race. But of course, to understand that the human race, and we have to understand that there, we are all interconnected. And when we talk about all the human beings, we go right back to East Africa. So we understand, we understand that. But if you don't understand that, and once the West tells you that race is a, is a defining feature in terms of who you are, once you buy into that notion, then of course, the lighter you are, the closer you are to white people, then of course, then the more legitimate you are, the more intelligent you are, the more socially acceptable you are. And to the extent that to the extent that you internalize that bullshit, is the fact that is to the, it epitomizes to the extent that you actually have been brainwashed. And so this is the problem in terms of education. 
this is why it's so important in terms of understanding, you know, uh, you know, educationally, you know, um, what it means in terms of, you know, Africa. Why is it that we don't have these these kind of these kind of organizations in the community to make damn sure that our children don't grow up with that slave mindset? It's very, very important. Uh, one of the things I was in Rwanda not too long ago, and uh, one of the things you know this this was actually was it was a long time ago actually, and this was one of the things prior to the um, prior to that uh, that whole um, uh, genocide that took place in Rwanda. But one of the things that the French did, and along with some Belgians, one of the things that they did was they intentionally impregnated the African women, knowing that the offspring, to 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 a large extent, would come out somewhat lighter than than, than Africans who who were not uh, who were not raped by the French or or the, or the Belgians. And what they did, they typically they gave those lighter-skinned Africans more benefits, and as a consequence, those lighter-skinned Africans actually started believing that somehow they were better than their darker-skinned African brothers and sisters. It's the same thing in America, where you have situations where uh, light-skinned Africans actually believe that by virtue of being lighter, that somehow that they're better off, that they're more intelligent, they're more erudite, they're much, they're much better looking, or whatever it is. You know, so this comes, this speaks volumes in terms of the kind of miseducation that exists in the minds of our people, and this is why institutions are so important in terms of making sure that our children get the message that the superficial bullshit about what the color of your skin is erroneous. It has no bearing whatsoever in terms of human development. Uh, you know, because all human beings come out of Africa, then when you think about it, then all people are African. And one of the things that was about a, Jap- a lot of Japanese students, the, the, you know, is that they understand that when, they, when it comes to terms of who they are, their position is that we're, we're, we're African. They're very clear on that point. They're very, very clear on that point because they understand that all you human beings go back to Africa, and when they look at their curly hair, their brown skin, they understand who they are. And so it's, and it's, that is important, it's important that people understand that. So to the extent that people, and particularly in America or in Africa, embrace colorism, it has a lot to do in terms of not understanding the history or buying to this notion in terms of, you know, race being a defining factor in terms of who you are as a person. So we must reject this bullshit science and understand that there's only one race, which is the human race, and this notion in terms of your skin color being uh, determinative and actually defining who you are is bullshit. So people have to understand that fundamentally. Uh, he's brother Hockey. I know you know raising some 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 issues on that last point. Where you raise the issues that we all people are Africans. You know there's a debate that constantly goes on in our community in terms of around that issue around race and what we are. But anyway, let's continue to move forward. But let me just raise this question uh, with the panelists. What is your take on you know many times people learn through association. They learn by observing. What can we learn or what have we observed? By how the U.S. government has, how the government has behaved in terms of their their tactics of trying to stick up the American people in order to build a physical wall or fence in the southern border of the United States um, to divide U.S. and Mexico. What do you think about the recent uh, behavior of the Trump Trump administration? And how it's being played out, panelists. Um, I think he's using uh, uh, rank-and-file federal employees as pawns, and uh, you know, in order to get his way, he couldn't get Congress to go along with funding the wall, and he won't. So, 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 uh, so, so, uh, because he couldn't get his way. 
he decides, you know, to, um, you know, uh, you, you know, partially shut down the government, and he's threatened to uh, call a, a, a national issue a national emergency if he does not get funding for this wall. Now, this notion of a wall between um, between the Mexico and U.S. Uh, in order to prevent uh, the migration of the indigenous people is very is racist and uh, ahistorical. Uh, and also and also I think uh, people need to be educated as to why uh, you know the people out of uh, Central America are willing to walk hundreds of miles uh, to get to the U.S. And that is because uh, U.S. capitalism has made a living hell out of, out of the countries that they come from, and uh, and uh, you know the peop- the masses are not armed, so they flee, uh, you know, to what they believe to be, uh, you know, uh, you know, a better land, and. Um, you know, and uh, migrations are an old uh, survival tactic in uh, in, in indigenous, uh, you know, uh, in American Indian history. Uh, when, for various reasons, the land became, uh, you know, inhospitable, they would move somewhere else. And uh, they have the right to do that. And the thing about it, though, I think, uh, uh, you know, our people should know better than us that that this land belongs to the American Indian, and that they are the original. Uh, they they were the first, uh, you know, people to occupy this land, and it belongs to them. So you know, the notion of building a border wall is is very racist, and historically, that method has um, has proven ineffective to st- uh, you know to stop people from migrating. Do we have Brother Moses back? Brother Moses, are you with us? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Hello? We can hear you. Yes, yeah. Moses, we can hear yeah, you. Yeah, I do. We can hear you. Yo, we, yeah. we see we're in a situation where, where racist activity takes place, and we call it race. We call out the racist activity, but it's very difficult to uh, call people racist. Uh, the term the applying racist to people it seems to be you know more difficult than pointing out racist activity itself and this is very interesting now uh, uh, ideologically we we're in a situation where people are are on ideologically clear on on the nature of the oppression, and so you know they come to conclusions that are, that are not are sound in terms of the long run, you know, which makes them like susceptible to people like Bernie Sanders, who, for instance, he's he's opposed to the uh, the invasion of of, uh, of Venezuela, but his but his but his talking points are so right wing that you hard to understand how he came to the, the conclusion. Uh, he's, He's talking about corruption in Venezuela, etc. And so, you know, we we have to we're we're in a very peculiar time in history. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. 
talking about peculiar, peculiar time of history, Brother Moses. Uh, you're right, yeah, because it seems like people are doing peculiar things. One of the things I'd like to response from this um, panel tonight is that I was looking at a news um, news program this past week where they reported a young man who was 21 years old. He decided to go off and kill his parents, his mother and father. Then he ended up killing his girlfriend and her mother and father. Now, am I asking myself, this ain't the first time we are now looking at the youth uh, killing their parents for for all kind of um, there are all kind of uh, wild and crazy responses in terms of killing uh, their biological family members. Now people are impacted based upon uh, their interrelationship with the system that govern them that they live under. I like to raise with the with this panelist. What did y'all make of the youth responding in these kind of behaviors, killing their family members? What can one make of a society where you have have a segment of that young folk responding uh, just irresponsibly? Um, Brother Haki? I think you're right. I think you're right, Brother Africa. You hit it on the head. Uh, one of the things that the ruling class won't allow us to have is discussions around how institutions impact the way people think. Uh, increasingly, we have seen the upswing in terms of the amount of violence uh, uh, happening in America. And that's no coincidence that this kind of violence is uh, is happening. Uh, keep in mind, when you look at the history of, of America, the history is predicated on violence. And so, therefore, the institutions reflect that reality. And so, therefore, what happens is that in the situation of this young man where he kills his family, they include there was some, 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 some antagonism that existed in terms of his relationship with his family, uh, which probably has to do with material existence. And to the extent that the young man felt good about himself is quite is, is probably the, the main motive in terms of, you know, uh, how why he killed his parents. I think that, uh, you know, also I think that one of the things is that when you talk about institutions in terms of how it impacts the way people behave, I think you got to ask the question, yourself the question in terms of what is the value of life. Um, one of the things that, you know, often we talk about America being on, 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 on the precipice you know, of, uh, you know, of uh, uplifting life. Of course, it's a very erroneous statement. The reality is, I mean, you look at it in terms of American policy, and clearly this respect for life is almost nil. There is no respect for life. And in fact, when you talk about the marketplace, it's all about profitability. It's all about making money. It's never about humanity. It's never about life. And so, therefore, it's easy to dispense with the importance of life, human life, if you've been taught, you know, from the time you were a little child that life has no meaning. The only thing that has meaning is access to money. And so, therefore, you have a situation where, you know, when you, when you talk to young people, say you take a young brother, young sister, or a young person out there, uh, irrespective of their color, you ask them, so why are you drug dealing? Uh, you realize, you know, you, you hurt a lot of people, you hurt a lot of families, you hurt your community, you realize that? Well, most of the responses, well, I don't give a fuck. Well, of course they don't care, because the bottom line is that it's about the money. It's not about the destruction of life. Even that means the life of your own mother and father. It doesn't matter. It's all about the money. And so, therefore, we have to have a discussion in terms of how these institutions impact the way we behave. Otherwise, this mass, this, this upsurge in terms of killings in America will continue to go unabated. And the thing that we've got to be, keep in mind also, and this is important that we keep this in mind, Brother Africa, is that those in position of power, the ruling class loves this kind of chaos. They want to see this kind of wholesale destruction because what? It keeps us distracted. So while we're killing each other, the media is therefore, you know, uh, sort of uh, glamorized, not glamorized, but certainly portray, 
you know, you know, the, the situation where these killings are taking place would sort of distract us because we are amazed at the fact that someone actually killed their parent. But the media want us to be distracted. We have to understand that there are institutions in place to facilitate that kind of mindset. And unless we do that, then this upsurge in terms of killings in America, as well as killings throughout the world, particularly those those societies which embrace capitalism, we can anticipate more and more killings. Brother Anthony, what you make of this? The youth killed their own family members and loved ones. Oh, let's see. I think it's it's sad. It's uh, unfortunate, and um, you know, and I think it is reflects the level of violence that exists in society. And I think the the message that come across, we look at the media and uh, and also um, you know entertainment, violence is glorified. And is celebrated, and uh, you know, and that seems to be uh, uh, when, when you can't get your way, you resort to violence, and especially with, uh, and it's not, and it's not so much the ready availability of guns in this society that's the uh, that's the root of the problem. I mean, that 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 that's merely the uh, the method because this are really available, but. What is it about the mindset of someone that will resort? Uh, how can someone be so, that angry that they would take out their frustration on uh, uh, on their parents and their significant other? And uh, you know, and the thing about it, though, what and uh, why is it that people are so quick to resort to killing people? I mean, no. Uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, no one hardly ever gets in the fights anymore. When someone has, whenever someone has a beef, they want to kill somebody. And uh, and I think I think that's rooted in the violent history of uh, of this country. I mean, the European colonists usurped this land from the American Indian violently. And they uh, they used Africans as cheap labor, violently. And I think, and you know, so the measures that come across is that uh, is the way to get your way is through violence. And uh, it's a dangerous message because it's highly destructive. And uh, but um, you know, but uh, but but the, the the way out of it again. Is to uh, change the society to a more humanistic one. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. You know, panelists, um, before we make our transition to our theme today, part two protecting, projecting, and the use of power, I would like to get your response to this scenario. Recently, in the U.S., in the state of Virginia, the state legislators voted down against a constitutional proposal where they will put in the Constitution where all men and women, all men and women will be treated equal, equal in all aspects, economic, socially, politically. They voted down that proposal, but yet they turned around and introduced a proposal where people should have a right to carry a gun to a church. 
what is going on in the, in, in the society? What do y'all make of, of those decisions? And these are the so-called lawmakers of their state. Mm. It was well, against the uh, rights for all men and women, but they yet they voted that all individuals should have the right and be okay to bring a gun to a church on Sunday. Yes, Anthony. Now, the only the, the only reason you carry a gun around is if you intend to use it. So I think it I think it sets a very well. That's just a continuation because um, uh, before we got there, I pointed out that in the during the days of chattel slavery in the U.S. and uh, in some states, uh, the European slave owners were so afraid of an insurrection. Or a rebellion breaking out that they carry guns to church with them on Sundays. Now these were European males, now. and uh, so uh, so actually it is not unprecedented, particularly in, uh, in 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 states where chattel slavery was rampant, for uh, for people to carry uh, uh, guns and in, in, within church. And I think it's a reflection of how violent the society is getting and how rampant fear and violence uh, are, 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 are governing the decision-making in this uh, society. And, uh, you know, and the thing about it, though, I'm, uh, you know, um, uh, churches are, are, are increasingly becoming uh, under violent attack. So I think uh, so. I think it's a combination of uh, fear and the violence that that that, that exists in the society, which is uh, being exacerbated because the, you know there's some people that are making money off of the suffering that's being caused by this. So after they're advocating bring guns to churches, guns to school, guns, gun, guns. Wow. Brother Moses, how can y'all respond to this, this particular uh, recent decision by these legislators, legislators in the state of Virginia? There seems to be a, a situation where a cultural decadence is coming in as far as I'm concerned. It, it's like the, the culture is just uh, so absurd that it, it's, it's just decadent and that um, these, this is a reflection of it. Yeah, well, I I I I think um, it's easier um, as a prescription to advocate, you know, having guns. Uh, it's a knee-jerk reaction to some very complex problems. But I suspect underneath it all, the reality is that it's all about maintaining, you know, uh, uh, class um, domination in American society. So I think that those who uh, have access in terms of being able to actually purchase weapons, or certainly large numbers of weapons, more powerful weaponry, seem to be people who are very, very wealthy. And so I think it's sort of a uh, a, a maneuver uh, to give a, a sense of um, security in the lives of the most the most powerful people in society. But having said that, I think one of the things, I think, you know, when we talk about guns in the church, I think one of the things with the Africa is that there has been increasingly the the the, uh, the, uh, the white right the right wing have been attacking African churches, 
and of course uh, there has been some some concerns going back to uh, the, the diggers of the fence that at some point these churches may have to arm themselves because you just never know when one of these fools is going to come in and start shooting up the place. Of course, the, the irony is that having a gun in church is not going. You're not going to prevent those kind of things from happening, because by the time you respond to those kind of things, the, the people have already been killed. Uh, so it doesn't take long in terms of pulling out a gun and start firing. So it's not a cure-all in terms of the problems that we're confronted with. But I think a much deeper problem is one, one is one is one of uh, one one of uh, uh, sociology. I think until we come to the realization that America is a very violent place, that America has never been a place of peace. A place of love, a place of justice. We continue to uh, uh, to us to adopt, you know, these um, these makeshift uh, uh, maneuvers in terms of you know trying to bring about a better world. A better world could never be brought about by simply you know utilizing weaponry. But of course, in America, you know, up is down and down is up. So you know, nobody should be surprised that the most superficial of of uh, of uh, uh, justifications. Are employed in terms of the use, you know, uh, the use of violence in the society. Okay, panelists, we'd like to thank you for your participation today on what's going on in your world and the community. What we're going to do is we're going to pause for this call, so when we come back, we're going to uh, discuss our theme today, which is part two: protecting, projecting, and the use of power. Pause for the calls and we'll be right back. You gotta listen to Africa on the Moon. No mind, you know me. 
One of the things he can do is deploy uh, military troops inside the U.S. And um, and also, among other things, he could also, um, uh, uh, let's see, uh, 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 block uh, Internet access, uh, see, uh, freeze, freeze bank accounts. And uh, so, um, you know, and um, one of the things that concerns me is the fact that there are no parameters within the Constitution that specify uh, what rights people have uh, 
or did not have d- during the emergency. And also, there's no, uh, and, it, and it could go on indefinitely. As a matter of fact, there, there, there are several states of emergency that exist right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, that there is no mechanism, uh, you know, for saying when, when that emergency is over. It's entirely up to the uh, to whoever you know occupies the presidency at that time, and uh, this this is very dangerous, and could easily lead to totalitarianism. Yeah, excellent, brother. You know, brother Haki, this article raised a, a very interesting question, and I'd like for you to respond to it as well. As a continuation on. Well, Anthony just elaborated. It raises the question that, but what if a president back into a corner and facing electoral defeat or impeachment would declare an emergency solely for the sake of holding on to power? Do you see that as not a possibility that this may, may take place? Yeah, that's always that's always that's always a, a, a concern, Brother Africa. One of the things, you know, for 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 over the last you know three years, there's been a lot of discussion in terms of inter, in, imperial uh, presidency. So, what typically what happens is that these presidents come in and they add their own little niche in terms of interpretation of the Constitution. So, a lot of times these these, these policy changes are very very uh, regressive or they're very very negative. Uh, they seek to give the president more and more power. So imagine someone like Obama uh, creating a situation where people uh, where he bombed an African state. Well, the next African, the next president will come along and say, "Well, he bombed African states, so I'm going to bomb two African states." So what happens is that these presidents create these precedents in which you know they fought, one president follows another in terms of their actions. And one of the things when we talk about this emergency, you know, state of emergency, one of the things that you got to be concerned about particularly when you talk about Trump, is that there's a whole notion in terms of you can use that as a tactic, you know, to stay, maintain power, then you, he would do that. I don't see, I don't see him have a problem with that. He would, he would, he would like they're doing in Venezuela, he would create the, the justification in terms of, in particular action, under guys that he's doing was right, but what he's really doing is doing all he can in terms of maintaining power. And keep in mind, this is a man who has a great disdain for presidential power. He doesn't like democracy. In fact, one of the things he often said was that, you know, that uh, it's hard to get anything done simply to have these check and balances. You actually have the Congress telling him that, hey, certain things you can do, certain things you can't do, certain things outside of his purview, certain things are our responsibility. He has a very difficult time with that. So I could see him using a state of emergency to justify his empowerment in order for him to stay in power because he doesn't feel it's out to have a problem with that. But more importantly, Brother Alfred, let me just raise this in terms of one of the, the downsides in terms of declaring a state of emergency. Uh, one of the things that, as you know, Trump has been very sensitive to people actually um, criticizing him. I mean, he has a very difficult time. He's one, he doesn't read, but he watches a lot of television, and he, and he hates it when people criticize him. One of the things that he can do by evoking, uh, you know, a state of emergency, he can simply set down, shut down all communications under the guise of the national security. He can simply do that, and that's nothing anybody could do. So that's a very, very real danger. Also, given the fact that when you start talking about terms of how expensive these wars are, uh, he could simply, you know, if the money if the money's not there simply to fund these wars abroad, he could simply freeze bank accounts and utilize that those funds for on an emergency basis. That in, in other words, 
that in order these wars have to be conducted, we need the resources, and so we took your money because we have to do it because it's in national interest. So we got to be very concerned in terms of potential uh, uh, potentialities when we talk talk about you know what's going on in this in this country, particularly when it comes to you know presidents uh, that are created by these presidents. Uh, if these if, if the changes that these presidents made were positive, if they in, empower people, if they made it a better world, if they evoke justice, if they create a situation where people have access to education, uh, uh, people have access to shelter, those kind of things, positive kinds of things, then I'm all I'm, I'm all in favor. But all of these president directives from, from you know from president to president historically have always been very very negative. They take power away from the people and give increased amount of power to the president. So we got to be very concerned about the imperial presidency uh, in the United States and all that entails. You know, Brother Moses, this article talk about and make a statement that it states, nevertheless, some legal scholars believe that the Constitution gives the president inherent emergency powers by making him commander-in-chief of the armed forces or by vesting in him a broad, undefined executive power. Now, we can see over a period of time there's been a close relationship and discussion between uh, the power of enforcement as it relates to the police enforcement and versus, you know, military participation inside of this country as it relates to inner cities. We can see there have been laws passed where local police uh, departments have been militarized with equipment that they normally use for military. We can see that uh, local police department has been given a wide range of leeway to do as they please to the citizens. So it's not that far reaches that uh, this may be possible. I was asking you when you read this article, what feel you had, or what feel was raised within your consciousness about this whole possibility of what could take place? based upon the objective reality that they can recognize it, Brother Moses, him doing as he please. Well, cer- certainly the, uh, the most dangerous thing I saw was the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, which means he could just detain people without charges, etc., and you declare them enemies more or less of the state, uh, just like during the, the World War Two when the Japanese were rounded up and put in internment camps and uh, with no no justification whatsoever other than that's what the president wanted. And so, you know, this suspension of uh, of of legal rights, you know, this is a very, very concerning man that I see. And President Trump is, you know, he's not he's not a friend of black people. So I, I, I fear that. Thank you. Okay, Brother Anthony, in the article, talk about the history of some presidents may have always used that uh, prerogative of extending their power as relates to doing things that he wants. Uh, can you speak to some of the examples that we have given that people need to be aware of, um, how these presidents that has always been set can also be expanded? Uh, yes, a uh, couple of examples of uh, this use of power was um, one example that the article gives is Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, interned uh, uh, people of Japanese ancestry 
during World War II. Uh, you know, and um, you know when uh, George Bush's uh, programs of warrantless wiretapping and torture after uh, September 11th, and um, uh, Abraham Lincoln suspending uh, the writ of habeas corpus during the Civil War. So uh, you know, so I mean, when when these the state emergencies involved, it creates a very dangerous situation, and it and it is prone to abuse, and uh, and and uh, people's uh, rights they think they have are infringed. Okay, and brother Haki. One of the things that America does very effectively in terms of its, um, that it does to its population, its people, is that it doesn't educate its people about their own rules and bylaws and the Constitution. I wonder how many people have ever heard of this thing called the National Emergency Act of 1976, and what does that, what does that mean? The National Emergency Act? Yes. You got you got you got to cut off for me, brother Africa. I'm not clear on exactly okay. what the National Emergency Act in terms of which, which what are you talking about? We're talking about the different tools available under the Constitution that the president can use to extend his power. And one of the things that has been done to allow it to extend his power is they create this, this Congress has created this, this passed this National Emergency Act of 1976, and under this law, the president still has has complete discretion to issue a state of emergency declaration, but he must specify in the declaration which power he intends to use, um, and he must give updates, you know, on, you know, on, you know, on the use of this power. But I'm just saying, in terms of giving and creating tools that he can use, many times we make laws and we don't even know these laws exist ourselves as people. Only certain people know this. So I was just wondering in terms of when we're talking about what is our rights and what is the obligations of our so-called um, leadership, how do we hold them accountable if we don't even know the laws that, that they govern them? Because I've never even heard of this National Emergency Act of 76 prior to reading this particular article. So if I ever heard of it, I'm quite sure me and young people know nothing about it. And I was actually just respond to just general some of the tools in this article that they have given us this that people may not know nothing about. Well, you know, the, the, the problem is, you know, Brother Africa, is that when you talk about interpretation of the Constitution, it's it's a fluid document. It's it's not static. Uh, I mean, so interpretations are open to uh, multiple interpretations uh, because one um, constitutional scholar may interpret it one way, another constitutional scholar may interpret it another way. For instance, of the New York School of Law, the Brennan Center, they talk about the fact that 122 statutory provisions give the executive the right to declare emergency emergency uh, emergency power to give use utilize emergency powers. Well, that's their perception in terms of the use of emergency power clause, you know, emergency powers. Uh, one thing is clear though, when we go back and we look at in terms of what happened in terms of George Bush, uh, in terms of when he declared. Uh, under emergency powers, that um, the U.S. was at war against terrorism. 
Uh, nonetheless, that that emergency power still stands today, and it hasn't and it hasn't been. Uh, no one has managed to challenge it to take it to court. So, in other words, the people who are the legal scholars of society are simply say, essentially saying that what that that uh, these presidential power are right and justifiable. That essentially that he can do anything he or she wants, irrespective of whether or not a national emergency actually exists. That they have fundamentally that right to do so. So, in terms of the masses of people understanding, you know, concretely exactly what the Constitution entails, that's an awful, awful difficult endeavor on Brother Africa. But the bottom line is that even constitutional scholars don't know what the Constitution entails. These, these politicians simply create precedents as they go along. There is no, there's, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no standard in terms of accessing precisely what they mean because it's open to various interpretations. But that law that you that you talked about back in 1976. Uh, was an attempt, at least, you know, to define exactly what the what the executive branch, what the president can do, and what the president can't do. But of course, when we look at the history, uh, clearly, uh, that attempt in terms of limiting the president's power has failed, because increasingly uh, the president is becoming more and more imperial, and they're in a position where they essentially they can do any and everything that they want to do. So it's a very difficult question to answer. But I don't see the mass of people coming to grasp in terms of understanding constitutionally what the president can and cannot do simply because the scholars don't know what the president can and cannot do. You know, panelists, I'm going to just leave this as an open-end question and y'all can respond to it. One of the things I thought really interesting in terms of reading this article was also around how it shows you that the myth of having private property trumps everything. Because even in this article, it states that if he decides to uh, uh, provoke a state of emergency, he can actually control your own private property. He can control it, he can dictate it, he can um, decide how it can be used. If he deems you as being in some capacity and complicit with the enemy or against the interests of the state, well, he can, but, but the bottom line is he has the right to control all private properties whether inside of the border U.S. or outside. I thought that was really interesting. Again, you know, there are many illusions we live under in this society thinking something exists when reality is just an illusion. Uh, your response to that to that reality of the use of private property where the state can um, have control of your own property at a time that ha- at a time when the state has been has declared a state of emergency. I think it well, sets a very Go ahead, Effie. Yeah, no, I'm saying I think it um it creates a very dangerous situation and also and also uh there is no possibility of redress. Which is a concern uh which is a concern. I mean um I mean I don't know how many people are familiar uh, you know, w- with the Constitution, or that there's this whole parallel structure in place that uh, that exists outside of the Constitution, the state of emergency, the ability to assume emergency powers, and that um, you know, and um, you know, in uh, in certain hands, it could lead uh, to totalitarianism. And open fascism, depending upon, uh, because um, 
the U.S. Constitution is so elastic, it doesn't define uh, uh, an emergency situation or the duration of it. Zachy, you gonna say something? Yeah, um, you know, you know, one of the things, you know, we got to be very, very clear in terms of how the society is organized. Uh, for those of us who think it's democracy, it's important to understand it's not a democracy; it's a republic. And as such, the, the rights of the ruling class are respected above all else. Um, so when we talk about rights of the, the ruling class versus the rights of the populace or the mass of the people, the ruling class always wins. So if that means taking your properties, uh, then that's what they do. If they think that's going to preserve their, their power or preserve their hegemony or preserve their right to rule, then they'll take your property. They don't care. It's not a problem. It's legal. In fact, one of the things this article talks about, it talks about the Commerce Department in terms of conflict potentially they had with uh, former President Ronald Reagan. Uh, there was a similar situation in which there was some discussion around, you know, uh, you know, uh, taking, you know, you know, this conversation of people's lands. Well, the problem was that when you do that, essentially what you're doing when you're taking someone's land is essentially violating a, a contract. And to violate that contract is, is something constitutionally it's always been upheld. Well, they, 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 they rule that, um, that it doesn't matter in terms of constitutionality, in terms of your right to have property as a contract, that what supersedes that right is the right of the ruling class uh, to maintain dominance over the rest of the society. And so that takes precedent. So this question in terms of what they do in terms of uh, taking one's land uh, being unconstitutional, as far as they're concerned, it's not a problem. And so I think we have to understand because society is organized that way, we have been standing for what it is and see the society for what it is. And for us, for those of us who continually think it's a democracy, they have to understand that because it's not democracy, we're simply uh, at the whims of those who, who truly rule on society, which is, which is the capitalist class. Brother Moses, give me your final thought on this article. What are some of the things that you may have not discussed that you'd like to share with our listening audience? Well, um, um, this this power is given to the president that that are that are vague and and un and undefined, un, uh, you know, and that basically, you know, it's, it's a lot of it is at his discretion, and so this is a very big problem, especially since we have someone like Donald Trump in in the office, uh, who's 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 a and and uh, and and has no no regard whatsoever for the working class. He's, he's strictly about money and the corporate structure, and so he's doing everything to streamline the economy to make it more more uh, useful for the corporate class. And so this this emergency power thing. Uh, it's very dangerous and and, and it's hands and uh, and that's my concern. Uh uh I just I just uh hope that that the working class can get organized and, and be in the streets to stop it. Uh thank you. Brother Anthony, final thoughts? 
thoughts on this article? Anything else you'd like to share with our listening audience as relates to this article? Are things that need to be aware of? Yes, that um, that uh, that the system that in a state of emergency, the system of checks and balances uh, that we depend on in terms of um, you know present uh, preventing excesses uh, does not apply during a state of emergency, and uh, and that's the real danger, uh, you know, behind this situation. And Brother Haki, you have any thoughts on this article? Anything else you'd like to share before we move forward? No, I I, I would agree. Um, the, the real danger is that the power is is is, is um, it's not accountable to anyone. That somebody can do as they please in, in terms of preservation of, of, of power. And any type of situation, people trying to maintain power, then you got to anticipate there going to be all kinds of abuses. Simply because there's something that you can do about it. And so. People in society have to begin to uh, take consideration, you know, given this reality. The question is, what are we going to do? Uh, and Fran brought the, um, the Jilly Jones, the yellow, the yellow vest, uh, who are taking a stand, who fundamentally understand that their right to live as, as, as human beings, their right to live as a citizen of France is a compromise. And those conditions of power understand that their concerns are not their concerns. And so, therefore, if, if it wasn't if the people of France, don't understand, you know, that uh, they have to take a just in their own hand. They may understand that it's no way conceivable to go to the people in positions of power and do the thing in terms of addressing the problems that are very real that the people in France confront. So the people in America have to do a similar kind of thing. You have to decide what you're going to do. Because the bottom line is this unaccountability is increasing leaps and bounds, and the people are becoming more and more powerless. And as we become more and more powerless, we're subject to more and more abuse. We must decide what we want to do. Okay, panelists, we're going to pause for this cause, and when we come back, we're going to continue the discussion of the theme tonight, part two, protecting, projecting, and the use of power. We're going to talk about the global rise of fascism, capitalism in game. We're going to pause for the cause, and we'll be right back. You got to listen to Africa on the moon. You have the emergence in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is an organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state... And you, well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. You know how we think, organize the hood under our chain banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I take a slug for the cause like Huey P. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I want to be free to live, able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and relying on religion for help. We do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy. A way of life based off the common needs. And all my comrades is ready, we just spreading the seed. Shout out to black males. 
live a third of his life in a jail cell. Cause the world is controlled by the white male. And the people don't never get justice. And the women don't never get respected. And the problems don't never get solved. And the jobs don't never pay enough. So the rent always be late. Can you relate? No more bondage, no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rather get shot in their back than fire back. We're tired of that. Corporations hiring blacks, denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map. That's why I write the shit I write in my rap. It's documented. I'm Every day of the week, I live in it, breathing it It's more than just fucking believing it I'm holding in one, rolling up my sleeves and shit It's C-Lo for push-ups now, many headed for one conclusion Niggas ain't ready for revolution You're black male, live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved and the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? We living in a police state Common features is um, is the blur that's uh, is a uh, uh, populist nationalism, very highly nationalistic. Uh, one nation, the na- uh, uh, is uh, one nation above every uh, above all else, and also there's a blur between the line between the military and police. And uh, there is an increasing level of violence overall in the society. And um, they, um, you know, you know, and and their fierce proponents of uh, dog-eat-dog capitalism and exploitation of labor. 
and uh, they and is characterized by uh, a ruthless exploitation of resources uh, through mining and deforestation. And uh, and and uh, just like other forms of capitalism, it represents a concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer hands. In other words, the rich get richer and and uh, the poor get poorer. Uh, you know, as fascism tends to develop, and there's a blurring of uh, and there's a loss of of uh, human rights. In the name of security. Okay. Yeah, listen to Africa on the Move. Uh, for our listening audience, if you have any views or comments you'd like to make as you hear the various discussions, please hit one and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Please hit one and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Brother Haki, one of the things about this article is talk about the global rise of fascism. And we know that history is best to reward those who are research. One of the um, statements that made in this article was that between, I guess, the last early part of uh, the 40s, around 1945, they had calculated between 45 and, let's say, 10, 15 years prior before that, between World War One and World War Two, they have lost over 6 to 8 to 80 million people have been slaughtered as a result of this, this, this concept that we call fascism. Now, how do you compare what's going on today in comparison to the issues and the concerns that this article is raising, Brother Hackey? Yeah, well, one of the things we got to understand, is one of the things, I think it's important when you, when you ask Brother Anthony in terms of elements of fascism, let me just go over that real quick to answer your question. And one of the things, first and foremost, people got to understand that you don't leave a majority in society to participate or support of fascist policies. You need most political sciences you only need about forty percent of the population. But more specifically when you talk about the elements of fascism, you gotta talk about the, the utilization of control and manipulation. Also you gotta talk about the, 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 the government creating, you know, these tribal or polarity in the population. In other words, recently in Florida there was a um, shutdowns because of the affecting around people. His position is that it shouldn't be affecting white working class people. It only should be affecting African and or Latin people. Uh, so clearly that's an example in terms of the polarization that's taking place, which fascist, fascist forces want to take place. Also, the whole question in terms of dehumanizing people is very, very important because if you can create a situation where you create the other, then you have to, you have to dehumanize people. So, for instance, the Mexicans are rapists, Muslims are terrorists, Africans are somehow uh, just uh, self-destructive. And so you create the, the narrative that says that these people are the others, and so therefore they are getting rid of them is a good thing for society. So this is what fascist, fascism seeks to do. And when we put all of these elements together, the thing that we had to understand, that ultimately all this spells out what? Destruction. It spells out destruction. This is important that we understand that. When we go back and we look at Russia, for instance, right, Russia signed, a, signed an agreement with the Germans that there was a, a, a binding agreement which says that we would not attack each other, okay? Well, you know what? That was like in 1943. And, I'm sorry, not 1943, 19, 1940, 1941. The agreement was signed. 39, thank you, Dan, Brother Anthony. That agreement was signed. Well, the Germans uh, reneged on the agreement not to attack. They started attacking their, their neighbors. 
uh, ultimately, two years later, they turn around and they attack Russia itself. So this question in terms of destruction is pretty much an intimate part of the equation when you talk about fascism. Because in order to maintain control, it means much, many, many people must die. It's a, very simple, it's a very simple equation. It's not complex at all. It's very, very straightforward. In order for them to maintain power and control, they must kill a large number of people. The question is how do you get people prepared to kill, or kill one another? Well, you create the conditions to ensure that they are killed one another. When you create utilization of, when you, when you utilize control and manipulation, then you're not telling people the truth. When you don't tell the people the truth, you can easily convince them that, that certain lies have certain legitimacy. So if you say Mexicans are all rapists, then people who are ill-informed, who don't know any better, believe in, in fact, Mexicans are rapists. So when you direct that population against the Mexicans that kill them, then that's what they do. If the situation in terms of African people, if you say African people are just a dead weight, and that it serves no use of purpose, and people who don't know it better, who don't know the history of Africa, or the history of Africans in America, they don't know that, then they tend to believe that which they are told. Again, we're talking about the power of propaganda. So if you believe that these people are superfluous, that African people are superfluous, then killing them is, a, is very easy to achieve. You simply point the masses of, uh, of fascists toward African people, and they'll go and kill them. So the ultimate, the, ultimately what, what it means is a large, a larger number of people are going to, are going to die, uh, precisely because... That is, that is the strategic planning of those fascists who are in position to manipulate folks. And this is what we have to understand. So when we talk about between, you know, 6 to 8 to 80 million people dying during that whole struggle uh, against the Nazis, uh, that's on the tip of the iceberg. When you superimpose upon that, you know, technology, and you look at increasingly more and more countries who are involved in terms of this, this, this tendency to a fascism, then we understand that increasingly more and more people are potentially going to die. And make no mistake about it. This is what we've got to understand clearly. When we talk about the epicenter of this movement of fascism, it lies squarely at the door of the United States of America. There's no question about that. So anybody who thinks that fascism is a German, uh, uh, a German phenomenon or a, a, a Swedish phenomenon or, or an English phenomenon or a German phenomenon uh, or a Brazilian phenomenon, look no further than the doors of the, United, the, the capital of the United States in Washington, D.C., this is the episode of what's going on in the world, and inevitably it's going to lead to wholesale destruction, and this is a very real danger that we are facing with. Now, I'm very mindful of the fact at some point we're talking about, we're talking about, um, we're, I'm sorry, I got this, this message in front of me, but at some point we're, talk, we're talking about, um, um, uh, yeah, well, I, well, let me just put it this way. If, 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 if people don't come to grips in terms of reality, in terms of potentially what's coming down the road, and one thing's for sure is happening. And when I when I think about history, uh, clearly uh, history has a way of repeating itself. People do the same things over and over and over again. If the masses of people somehow don't find out for themselves to stand up, first of all, they've got to educate themselves. But then after educating themselves, they have to stand up. If they don't do that, the one thing's for sure, that history will repeat itself. So we can anticipate casualties uh, well, well surpassing, you know, 68 to 80 million people. You know, Brother Anthony and Brother Moses, uh, one other feature about fascism is how corporate America uh, controls or becomes actually the authority in terms of dictating uh, what's good for the government. In the process of that, often once the state becomes a fascist state, it also has a tendency to turn against its own people. Brother Anthony, what are the conditions that allow a state to become so powerful? that it turns against its own people and the people don't see it. And then, Brother Moses, I'd like for you to respond to that also. Brother Anthony. 
Ashley, um, uh, the the educational and, and uh, educational system and the media play a major role in that. In uh, you know, in terms of um, feeding uh, uh, bourgeois propaganda to the people, misinformation, and not providing enough information for people to make an informed decision about what uh regarding what's what's happening in the world and their relationship to it and we see this happening inside the US today in terms of uh you know those people who do not have internet access then they then they are uh at the mercy of corporate media in terms of finding out uh you know uh you know the the news and information and it's through the manipulation of this information that people are turned against themselves. And I think that's one uh that's one of the, the chief methods of fascism. You know, you know brother Moses, I'm going to read this particular situation from this article and it sounds like the reality is that people are living today particularly in the confines of Western Europe and the U.S. It says that in Central South America, it says that the neo-fascists have draped themselves in the flag of populism and nationalism, and therefore have distinguishedly convinced their supporters that they are the champions of a fight against globalism, elitism, and the corruption of the neoliberal political system. They have... Uh, however, fierce proponents of dog-eat-dog capitalism and its abject systematic exploitation of labor. Fascists enthusiastically support the global military-industrial complex, as well as capitalism, senseless exploitation of resources through mining and deforestation. For fascists, just as for capitalists, wealth must be concentrated in a few hands, and money may circulate across borders without constraint, while ordinary people may not. Talk about that 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 reality uh, that was stated in this article, Brother Moses, and what people are living today in the borders of the Western countries. Yeah, look, the the name of the game is 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 monetary gain, profit-driven system. Uh, basically, it's tree streamlining the economy so that the wealthiest people can get more and more wealth out of the economy. And, and they use fascist propaganda and manipulate the press and, and, and play on the back of the fears of people in order to accomplish this task. And so, you know, the, the, the people have to be able to see what's really going on. But... It takes a, it takes a lot of intellectual effort and uh, and uh, pursuit of, of of facts that are not readily available from the mainstream media, and so people are you are told that some segment of the population is the enemy, or, or that some segment of the population is causing it. Uh, the idea that they're pushing it in. And as well is that there's been corruption and, and that these these people are are, are corrupted and uh, and so they need to be ousted. Uh, there's all sorts of tactics uh, 
as the main goal is to streamline the economy for the rich, and that's that's the bottom line. Uh, thank you. You know, many times, Brother Anthony Haki, when we look at the development of a fascist society, you find corporations will be on will play both sides of the fence. It's talk about it talk about the rulers, um, General Motors, and Ford car dealership. That role doing Nazi development and this whole question of global capitalism. Can you just talk a little bit about how these forces play both sides of the fence and how they benefit from such a system, Brother Anthony and then Brother Hakeem? Sure. Uh, capitalist uh, corporations like Ford and General Motors, they heavily um, they heavily armed supplied uh, vehicles to the Nazi regime uh, during the 30s. And uh, the article points out that Henry Ford himself was a Nazi supporter. And, uh, you know, Hitler was a fan of the uh, of the um, of uh, Henry Ford, and um, they um, they they switched uh, 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 allegiances uh, during World War Two. Uh, they um, and uh, let's see, and um, th- and to this day, major corporations play uh, play both sides of the ba- battlefield to this day. And uh, and uh, it's not just Ford and GM, but all the other multinational corporations. And uh, it's no practice of capitalism uh, to arm both sides during the war, and that way they they maximize their profits regardless of who who of who wins that war. Well, Haki, they talk about Trump, they talk about the present president of Brazil, they talk about the kingdom of um, the Saudis, kingdom. They talk about all of these forces as being manifestations of um, or symbolic of a fascist, fascist tendency or advocate fascism. Can you talk a little bit about when we look at what's going on in these countries around the world? We share these same similar tendencies. Who have some major forces today are very fascist in terms of its its behavior. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, the the nexus between the U.S. government and these fascist forces throughout the world is well documented. So nobody should be surprised. But I shouldn't say just the United States, but other Western nations, well, in particular the U.K. and France, are very good in terms of relationship. With these Nazi, with these fascist governments, bringing these fascist positions of power. But let me just point out one example in terms of one concrete example in terms of this happening. We all we all know about Ukraine, and the fact um, Victoria Nuland, the former Assistant Secretary of State, she's talking about the fact that they spent five billion dollars to bring the Nazis to power in Ukraine. Well, ironically, out of that five billion dollars, three billion went to the pocket of the former current president Poroshenko. So this this document this, this this relationship is well documented. But in addition to that, one of the things that recently happened, several of the white supremacists who were watched or marched in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, were trained in Ukraine. They were trained by a battalion called the Azov Battalion. It's a neo-Nazi paramilitary group in the Ukraine, and they are funded, in particular, by the United States. The United States. 
and they have support from the U.S. military. And then these Nazis were trained there to come back to bring their, their knowledge back to the United States to train other Nazis in terms of how better to fight uh, this war that has to be waged uh, on behalf, you know, of white people even here in America. Now, the, all, the group that they represent is called the Rise Above Movement, R-A-M. Now, but it, what was interesting about Africa is that the Obama administration tried to shut down funding these Nazis, these Nazis in uh, Ukraine. Well, that, that attempt was blocked by the State Department. So often we talk about the deep state. We don't understand how much power they have in terms of their ability to actually shape a presidency. Obama was, was in favor of, you know, this divide, you know, denying these people money, but the State Department said, no, 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 we will continue to fund them. And the question is, why would you continue to fund these Nazis? Why would you want to do that? Well, it serves their overall interests. And so when we talk about the Nazis in Ukraine, we can't, we, we can't dismiss the Nazis in um, places like um, Hungary, uh, places like um, um, uh, Spain, places like Austria. Uh, you know, a place like Italy or even Brazil, for that matter. So clearly, uh, you know, this, this this relationship that exists between the U.S. and these fascist movements around the world has precedent, uh, and it's been going on for a long, long time. Uh, what has to happen? People have to come become aware in terms of what's happening, and the fight is going to be a fierce one in terms of trying to get this government to decouple from uh, you know investment in these in the creation of these these fascist fascist uh, governments around the world. Uh, clearly, in terms of the needs of global capitalism, you have to have fascism in place because you have to have some mechanism, some means in which you kill large number of people to maintain power. Fascism offers Western power, Western governments that opportunity uh, to not only kill large number of people, but to maintain, more importantly, to main, maintain power, thus maintaining its hegemony of the world. So clearly, this is what's going on in terms of relationships. So people have to understand that. So again. When we talk about the epicenter of this, 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 this fascist Nazi nexus, we got to understand that it's Washington, D.C., it's the United States of America, it's no one else is here which facilitates this movement. Okay, panelists, job well done. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for this cause, and when we come back, we're going to ask you for your closing thoughts for today's program as we've been discussing the theme, Part 2, Protecting, Projecting, and the use of power. We share with our listening audience that please take a chance, take some time out and check out this article, The Global Rise of Fascism, Capitalism Endgame. It was written um, on the 12th of January, 2019, from Global Research. So we can pause for this call when we come back, panelists. We'd like for y'all to give y'all final thoughts for the night. This is absolutely Up. That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. I'm all about peace and an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy. Mosaddegh was democracy. Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure.
Glenn Beck is a racist Got the strip was getting bomb Obama didn't say shit After you divorce yourself From the right wing propaganda campaign It's all simple and plain America can stand the game Your president got an African name Now who you gon' blame When they dropped them bombs out of them planes Using depleted uranium Babies looking like two-headed aliens Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal Ain't nothing subliminal to it That's how they do it See the game they run Give a fuck if he's cunning, articulate and handsome Afghanistan held for ransom by the hand of this black man Neo-colonial puppet, white power with a black face He said, fuck it, I'll do it A master of the skies, expert at telling lies Then they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize Should've known he was trained in Chicago Word the chairman Fred and Mark Clark What they do in the dark will come out in the light Like a WikiLeaks site So I guess the crew was right, who's ready to fight? Last stage of imperialism, I ain't kidding In the immortal words of Marvin Gaye, this ain't living
defined by hatred of the other together with a tyrannical executive power was called by its proper name, fascism. And so I think we have to understand that, that you know, these tactics of the fascists are can vary, but, but you know, they have a, a, a generalized uh, hatred and, and, and uh, playing on, on the backward fields of the people. And, and, but this, but the, meanwhile, the economy itself is being streamlined for corporate and bourgeoisie interests. And so we have to we have to understand that and uh, fight it. Thank you. And thank you, Brother Moses. All right, we have with us Brother Haki. You find the thoughts for tonight. All I all I can say is that the situation is critical, um, and that's not an exaggeration. Uh, people have to wake up. Uh, it's very very critical. Uh, there's no other way to put it. Um, make yourself informed. Um, you know, create those institutions. Uh, time is not on our side. And having said that, I always encourage people to unravel the matrix. And everybody have a good night. Thank you, brother Haki. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is that in order to defeat imperialism, the masses of the people must be organized. Join an organization that is working for your people's liberation. And uh, Pan-Africanism is the solution to the problems of African people. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Thank all the panelists. Thank all our supporting and listening audience for allowing us to come in your homes tonight where we can speak truth to power with valuable information so they can help you towards helping to liberate the people and help liberate humanity from all of the various of all of the various forms of oppression. We encourage you to tune in every Sunday evening from seven to nine PM Eastern time. Um, to listen to Africa on the Moon. If you have any views, comments or suggestions, you can email us at Africa on the Moon to at Gmail. Until next time, like always, we encourage you to subscribe to Go Forward Apple, Backwards Apple. We will not be on next week, but we'll see you on the 10th of February. And let's remember to continue to subscribe to Go Forward Apple, Backwards Apple, and we'll leave you with the song, Walk. What is it good for?
gentlemen.
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine. Needs, our love. needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Her freedom, Palestine, Palestine needs our love.